Welcome to the Cato Institute, and welcome to our panel discussion on coercive plea bargaining, um, or just plea bargaining. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and um, um, thrilled to see uh, so many of you joining us, and uh, thanks to those of you who are joining us online. Um, plea bargaining uh, is something that every, every American who cares about our criminal justice system should know about. Um, I was listening to a podcast on the way to work this morning, uh, and it's a serial podcast. They're focusing on the criminal justice system in Cleveland in particular. Uh, and they quoted a judge during this podcast who said accurately that plea bargaining is not part of our criminal justice system. It is our criminal justice system. 95% of all criminal convictions today are obtained through plea bargain, and in the federal system, it's 97%. I believe that all of us should be deeply skeptical of a system in which almost nobody wants to exercise one of the most hallowed and hard-won rights in the whole Constitution. Why on earth would people say, you know what, um, I could make the government prove my guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury, but I'm just not really interested in doing that. Um, that's just not a right I care to exercise. I think all of us should think long and hard about what dynamics likely come into play to cause so many people in our system to forego this extraordinarily precious right. What is going on? And that's the focus of this panel. And we're going to spend the next hour and a half discussing uh, what's going on and uh, hopefully end with some thoughts about what we might do to try to mitigate the fundamentally coercive nature of plea bargaining in our system. Sitting next to me is Somil Trivedi from the ACLU. He works um, in the Trone Center for uh, Justice and with the ACLU's, um, um, I'm sorry, what you, tell me what, what ACLU's what? Sure, uh, it's, it's part of the Trone Center for Justice and Equality and we have a standalone prosecutorial reform project um, of which I'm a litigator. So before that, you were a trial attorney with DOJ's fraud section and the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. Right. You do a substantial, you did a substantial amount of pro bono work. You are a graduate of Georgetown University and Boston University. Excellent. Sitting next to you is Bonnie Hoffman from the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. She's in charge of the NACDL's public defense reform and training. Um, she's a career public defender. Before that, she was, um, uh, for 21 years, a public defender in Loudoun County, Virginia. Um, she is a graduate of UBA and George Mason Law School. Thank you so much for being with us. Finally, Scott uh, Heckinger um, from uh, the Brooklyn Defender Services. He's a public defender um, in New York City. He's a graduate of Duke and NYU. Um, he is a, a prolific commentator uh, and one of, uh, for my money, one of the most insightful um, and cutting edge um, Twitter feeds that I follow. Um, <laughs> if you want to know what's really going on in our criminal justice system, I really strongly urge you to follow uh, Scott on Twitter. Um, you have to have a very strong stomach <laughs> and a certain amount of resolution in order to, um, to, to deal with the insights that come through on that Twitter feed. Welcome to the life of a public defender. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, thank you all uh, for being on this panel. Thank you again for attending. Um, we will, <clears throat> uh, the three panelists will each start um, with a, an opening statement of uh, four or five minutes, and then we'll just proceed with a guided uh, conversation, um, and then at the end we'll take some questions from the audience. Simon? Sure. Thank you, Clark. Um, thank you, Scott and Bonnie, for being here. Um, 
The very basic notion uh, of plea bargaining is uh, implemented by three players in the system, uh, obviously, uh, judges, defense attorneys, and prosecutors. And I want to start with the most powerful of those, which is prosecutors. Um, there is no denying the fact that prosecutors wield the most power over the plea bargaining system because you know we like to think of the criminal justice system, as Clark hinted at, as an adversarial system in front of a judge, standing above you in robes, uh, in front of the public, um, where legal arguments are made by both sides, uh, and then a decision is rendered. That is not how the criminal justice system works at all. The criminal justice system is implemented in hallways outside of court, over email when plea bargains are sent out, um, and uh, the prosecutor determines the terms of that engagement. Uh, the prosecutor decides uh, what charges to bring, the severity of those charges, um, whether they are death eligible or otherwise have a mandatory minimum, uh, the timing of discovery to give over, right? Uh, and the defense attorney is left to take it or leave it. Um, and with very, very minimal involvement by the judge, uh, the deal is then struck. Right, so when we're, I, wa I wanna stress to everybody um, that when you're thinking about the justice system, you're thinking about plea bargaining, and if you're thinking about plea bargaining, you're thinking about prosecutors. Um, and later on, hopefully, we can get into how prosecutors themselves can fix some of these problems via internal policy. But for now, let's just keep that in mind, that prosecutors are the plea bargaining system. And forgive me, Scott, you had an illustrative story that you were going to share with us. Would you do that? Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think <clears throat> the best way to understand um, how plea bargaining is coercive and how it drives the system and, frankly, how so many people uh, who are innocent or who are legally innocent, so folks who have been stopped and frisked unconstitutionally by the police or been the victim of police violence, still plead guilty. Um, and it's something that, as a public defender, you know, I see every day. And just one, one client... Um, you know, is story is really striking, I think, to me. But it is, you know, it is a good example of what I see. Thirty-nine-year-old man um, who was arrested and charged with a violent felony for assaulting three different officers. He was accused after a, a warrant was issued and uh, officers came to his house, around eight of them, assault, assaulting three officers, uh, trying to take their guns, and uh, he was charged with a de-violent felony, mandatory minimum given his record five years in prison for each one of the three officers who he assaulted. He had uh, two staples in his head. He had scratches um, all over his body. He had been beaten with a baton. Um, there were medical records. Um, I met him on that first day. And if you looked at his record, you'd think, because they were all guilty, please, this is someone uh, who was likely to have done it. You know, this is, as a public defender, we look at a, a criminal uh, record, and it's the catalog of all the worst things someone's ever been accused of doing. Uh, unfortunately, that's where the prosecutor and judge's job ends right at the beginning on that first stage when they're deciding what to charge and what, uh, what kind of bail to set. It's where our job begins. And I went back, I remember, uh, behind the cells, behind the judges, uh, uh, where the judge sits, and he, was, he said to me, I am innocent. I was sitting in my house, and these officers came in like the SWAT team and beat me bloody. And I didn't touch them. I couldn't touch them. I didn't have a second to breathe. I've pled guilty every other time. And when I pled guilty, I pled guilty because I did it. I also pled guilty because of the forces that were there. But I'm not doing it this time. 
I got out and uh, argued to the judge uh, that he should be released on his own recognizance and that he couldn't afford any money because he couldn't. Unfortunately, the judge set bail in the amount of $35,000. And over the course of the next year and a half, he sat on Rikers Island while I fought his case, begged the prosecution for discovery, which is evidence, uh, which they withheld uh, for a long period of time and never turned over all of the evidence. Um, he faced, he kept being reminded of those five years. He was being offered the minimum, the five years. And I saw over the course of this year and a half, this man who wanted to have his truth, wanted to have his day in court for the first time ever, wanted to be able to challenge these officers, felt so offended and wanted to feel like he had agency. That kind of emotion and that kind of strength slowly seep away as the time he spent in jail faced with enormous amounts of violence on Rikers Island, as his mom continued to visit him and her health declined and his thought of wanting to be back to help her increased, um, as that number, that five years, didn't come down and his fear of spending any more time in jail, um, I saw him change. And he told me, he's like, I'm losing it. I'm losing that drive. I'm losing that strength. I got to be honest with you, Scott. And then um, a week before we were going to be starting hearing and trial, uh, the prosecution offered the equivalent of time served, plead guilty to a nonviolent felony, and essentially get out on the same day. And to him at that point, it was a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. um, he apologized to me. I remember this. He's like, I'm sorry. Um, I, I wish I could go forward with this. But he apologized. And in that moment, his story, his complicated story, his life was kind of narrowed to a plea allocution, are you guilty, are you not guilty? And my job as a public defender, I'd done all this investigation, was ready to challenge these officers, was narrowed to helping a man through a guilty plea. And when the judge asked him, are you pleading guilty, or is anyone forcing you to plead guilty, I literally felt him bristle at the question. Because while the prosecution wasn't holding a gun over his head, the forces at play, the fact that the case was going on for so long, speedy trial, the fact that he faced such significant mandatory minimum sentences if he did go to trial, the fear of not knowing all the evidence, um, and just the desire to want to go home and end the pain and violence on the inside was far too much. It was coercive, and everyone knew it. Uh, but he said, no, no one's forcing me to plead guilty. And like that, the case was over. So um, that's how coercive plea bargaining works in practice. So that brings us to a point, Bonnie, that you made um, while we were chatting before this event began. Um, you suggested that plea bargaining may be in itself maybe a misnomer. Could you um, elaborate on that point? Absolutely. Bargaining would mean that there's a give and take, right? That we come to the table and I'm going to give something and you're going to give something and then there's some measure of equality in what we're doing. Um, that is so far from the truth, it, it, I can't even think of words to use to describe it. There is such a fundamental imbalance in our criminal justice system that while there is certainly a very large plea process, there is really almost no bargaining. When you think about everything from you know, what Scott was just discussing about, we're going to bring these mandatory minimum charges. We can control the number of charges you get. We can control where you're held, how long you're held, how long you wait. But even more fundamentally, there are powers that the prosecution has that are simply things the defense doesn't. The ability to get information. So a prosecutor can rely on the use of a search warrant and go and compel somebody.
to give them information that a defendant can never exercise and use. They have the power of, as a police force, being able to go to a third party and say, we want this information, and it'll be produced. They have the ability to offer a co-defendant, a potential co-defendant, the opportunity to negotiate and cooperate and to give them something in exchange for it. If I, as a defense attorney, went to a potential co-defendant or a potential witness and said, if you would come and testify on behalf of my client, I will give you whatever it may be, money, freedom, dropping your charges, I would be the one being prosecuted. I'd be prosecuted for witness tampering. I'd be prosecuted for obstructing justice. And yet that is the power that prosecutors have. And that, that imbalance in power and, and this imbalance in information. So one of the things that I think we're going to talk about is you know, where pleas happen, usually very early in the process, before a defendant is given access to information. Um, you know, I think we're going to talk about exculpatory evidence and the value of exculpatory evidence. Um, when I want to plead, I give up the right to access that information. As a prosecutor, I get to control that. Are you going to even get that information? I don't have to tell you what information I have before you have to make a decision. And so to call this plea bargaining, I think, is a misnomer. Um, there is certainly a plea mechanism. It is certainly coercive, um, but there is really no bargain. As a defense attorney and as a, as a, a person who is accused by the leverage, right, the thing I can offer is, then we'll go to trial. And that is such a um, difficult threat to give any value to as a prosecutor. Um, not only because I know how few cases are going to ultimately go to trial, um, but I know how much pressure I can exert. And as my case looks worse, I can just exert more pressure. I can make the deal better. Mm -hmm. I can offer you more until you get to a point that it is no longer something that you can withstand. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I, I'd like to move us away, because I think language is really important. And the minute we stop calling this a plea bargaining process, and the more we just simply call it a, a plea coercion or a plea process, um, the closer we start to get to having a real conversation about this. Thank you. Before we get into the mechanics um, of plea bargaining and, and some of the dynamics that exist and, and, and you know, combine to make it coercive, um, I thought we might talk just a little bit about the history of it. Um, Plea bargaining was unknown at the founding. It is not mentioned in the text of the Constitution. On the contrary, uh, the Constitution provides that all uh, criminal uh, charges will be resolved uh, through a trial. And, and uh, the Bill of Rights actually spends more words talking about trials than any other subject. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's unconstitutional, but it does mean that as a matter of history, it was unknown at the founding. There had been um, both in um, um, pre-founding pre England and, and, and early on in our history uh, expressions of concern about uh, plea bargaining. Um, in Europe, they used, uh, during uh, the Middle Ages, they used judicially sanctioned torture uh, to extract confessions from people. It was actually part of their system. Um, and um, there's, a, I think, a longstanding concern about the, the, the means by which one can induce someone to confess to a crime. Samil, you were mentioning before we sat down here um, that this skepticism about uh, um, plea bargaining or, mm -hmm. or inducing people to plea um, persisted until relatively um, late in our history. Can you comment or elaborate on that a bit? Sure. Um, I think uh, up until the Warren Court in the, in the late 60s, we had a, a judicial skepticism of plea bargaining. Uh, there's the Jackson case in 1968, which essentially said that prosecutors or the state could not uh, condition a charge on, uh, a condition a plea on, on getting the death penalty. Uh, I think that was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Um, but uh, as we were talking about earlier, 
the rise of the war on drugs, the vast expansion of the criminal law generally was met with a concomitant release of this skepticism and a judicial sanction of plea bargaining because the system would break down otherwise. And I think hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about the role that judges play in allowing this system to perpetuate, not because of the merits of plea bargaining, not because of the merits of any one case, but because of the nagging suspicion that the entire system will blow up and that will be very difficult. So. You know, I have to say, I think judges have abdicated their constitutional role to scrutinize plea bargains specifically because we've just got too much criminal law and it would be too hard. Yeah, I think we have this impression that mass incarceration, plea deals, pretrial detention, mandatory minimums, these are all inevitable um, because it feels so present. It feels so uh, a part of the system. But it's a relatively recent occurrence, just the past couple decades, 70s, 80s, and 90s, when crime was in the top five issue uh, that people are paying attention to when people were voting. Um, politicians uh, were terrified of doing anything that was soft on crime and knew that being tough on crime would actually be uh, a politically sellable proposition. Um, and so, you know, in these decades, we saw an enhancement in the number of crime, number of things that were crimes, things that shouldn't be crimes to begin with. Crimes of, you know, quality of life crimes, being the victim of a substance abuse disorder, that's criminal possession of a controlled substance, um, not having a place to sleep, that's misdemeanor trespass, or um, not having enough money to afford public transportation. In New York, that's theft of services, each one punishable by a year in jail. On top of that came mandatory minimum sentences, which you know some would say were intentionally designed to actually create a system by which pleas were the, the rule rather than the exception. Um, but it certainly became one of the forces that drove it. Um, discovery laws that were extremely harsh and allowed prosecutors to withhold all evidence in New York until the day of trial. Um, so um, all of these, these laws that happened during these, the, you know, out of political expediency, not necessarily thinking through the consequences of each of these laws individually, but certainly collectively, have led to where we are today. And so I think it's important to realize that not only is it really different from the founder's vision, which was limited, fair, merciful, um, transparent. transparent, you know, aside from the fact that it only applied to white men, uh, but, uh, but it's also, uh, it's really new. And, and I think that's a, it's, a, it's a powerful thing to realize because that means that we don't have to be okay with it mm -hmm. and we can start um, thinking about ways to reverse it. I thought it might be helpful for people who are not as familiar with the process uh, as, as all of you are, if we could sort of um, work through systematically um, the, what, you, what each of you maybe considers to be the, the, the most important dynamics that lead to coercive plea bargaining. Scott, you talked about one uh, that, that I hear uh, from my other friends who are criminal defense attorneys a lot. It's just simply, it's pretrial detention. Yep. It's, it's the fact that somebody doesn't have their freedom. So. Um, why don't we start with that one and we'll sort of move through the process identifying some of these uh, uh, dynamics that give prosecutors so much yep. leverage. Mm. So we know that uh, if you're charged with a misdemeanor and you have bail set, and you're, most of my clients, 87% of my clients who have bail set can't afford the bail and they stay on Rikers Island. And we know that in misdemeanors, you're nine times more likely to plead guilty to a crime than otherwise. And in felonies, we know that you're far more likely not only to be indicted, uh, not only to plead guilty, but to 
plead guilty to worse crimes and do longer time. If now, why is that? If you're in detention. If you're in detention. Yeah. Now, why and why is that? Um, in misdemeanor cases, the vast majority of misdemeanors, uh, you're ultimately offered, and usually within about seven days, um, a plea of time served. And whether you're guilty or you're innocent or whether you were approached, stopped and frisked unconstitutionally, police officers, undercover officers rifling their hands in your pockets, just walking down the street, um, you're going to take that deal because when you're in on Rikers Island um, or any jail, but Rikers Island is one of the most violent, horrific prisons, jails or prisons in the entire country, and your life is crumbling on the inside, and you're terrified. And on the outside, you're in danger of losing your housing. You're in danger of uh, losing your bed and your shelter. Uh, you're a breadwinner, and your family's left without their breadwinner. Your mother or your son needs, is in need of caretaking. Um, there's nothing more powerful than the desire to want to go home. And in the case of felonies, even though you're given an offer that might necessarily, not necessarily have you go home the following day, um, just knowing, having a date certain, and knowing that it's not that mandatory minimum of five years, so let's say it's two years or it's one year, um, gives you, you know, enormous amount of, of, I don't know, just, it, it takes the homesickness away, knowing when you're going to go home. Um, so, yeah. Let me ask Bonnie, um, does having a client who is um, in jail make it more difficult to uh, put together a defense or to work with them in putting together a defense? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the data that Scott's talking about, people who stay in jail while their cases are pending face three times as long a jail sentence, twice as long as a prison term, um, if, even if they go to trial. Um, somebody who is in jail loses access to information, to witnesses, to resources, um, and that's before we talk about what it means from a defense attorney standpoint to have the ability to communicate meaningfully with your client and engage them in your case. Um, and so it's things as simple as access to information, phone numbers, addresses, where do people live, um, connections to your community, um, the ability to engage in services. Uh, you know, one of the reasons we know that people face longer time is because they don't get access to services and to other, other things that can help ameliorate their case. Um, but on top of that and on top of the the, the coercion that you feel. Um, you know, somebody who is sitting in jail, they lose that ability for you to have the same meaningful relationship. Um, and it leads to some things. Um, we know, for example, in a lot of jurisdictions, phone calls. Mm-hmm. Um, phone calls of individuals who are incarcerated are monitored by law enforcement. Um, and in some places, that includes monitoring of attorney-client communications. Um, that's coming out in place after place. And so that ability for me to even have a meaningful conversation with my client, to go there and talk about their case, for them to share information about what happened, about a witness, to discuss an offer to do anything, I might as well just knock on the door of the prosecutor and say, come on over, I'm going to see Johnny today. Why don't you join me? We can chat about it. Um, but they lose that ability. Picking up a phone and calling your mother, your sister, your friend to talk about, hey, my lawyer's going to be coming and they're going to want to talk to you um, and they're going to ask you about this or can you find that, that's not protected. My client in jail has no way to have a private conversation with anybody. Their calls are monitored, their mail is monitored, their visitation can be monitored. And so how can they participate in their defense? To be clear, it's 
my understanding that it is wildly improper and unconstitutional to, to uh, record uh, or monitor a call between um, a defendant and their attorney. It just so, happens that it happens, right? Um, if you ask Louisiana, they will say it is not unconstitutional. If you ask California, they will say it is not. Uh, Leavenworth, Nebraska, uh, Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. um, we, we know that, that these things are happening, and they're happening all over the country. Sometimes we're hearing that it's accidental. Mm -hmm. um, in Louisiana, they're saying they can't exempt cell phones. They can only exempt landlines. So if an attorney has a cell phone mm -hmm. and uses a cell phone, that they can't exempt that. They can only exempt the landline. Either hands um, are tied, huh? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a really tough thing. And so now I need to go visit my client. Mm -hmm. um, and for those of you who have never had to go visit a client in jail, it's not like I can just show up mm -hmm. uh, when I want and do what I want. Um, in some places, I have to make an appointment. In some places, I can't get a contact visit. I can't see somebody face to face. In some places, I show up and they tell me, today we're having a lockdown. Um, there's a malfunction with a piece of equipment. You can't come in right now. I could wait 10 minutes, a half an hour, an hour, two hours. I could drive four hours in some places to have to see clients. When you get outside of a place like New York City, go out into a rural community um, in half of America where an attorney drives four hours to go and see a client. Um, and they may be told that they have a half an hour or an hour. Um, and think that you're going to develop an opportunity to investigate your case. Um, and as a public defender, when you marry that with all of the other things I'm dealing with, my caseload and some of my other resource limitations, it's, it's a virtual So no question that pretrial detention seriously impairs the, the, the defense team, the defendant, the defense counsel. Yes. Scott, you want to add something? I was just going to say, even in New York, Rikers Island, it, it takes at least half the day mm -hmm. to, to do a visit. And this is right in you know, New York City. And uh, for public defenders who have full caseloads, 100, 120 cases, um, that can be impossible um, most days. And so what we're left with is setting up video conferences, which take a week to set up. Yeah. Um, and it's just not the same. It's, it's also, it goes back to attorney, the, the attorney-client relationship. Trust building is so critical from that very first moment when you meet your client at arraignments within 24 hours at arrest, let alone kind of going forward. And uh, when you don't have that face-to-face -face contact, that trust dissipates. And that also plays into this fear of, you know, I, I can't trust anyone. I can't even trust the person who is assigned to represent me, which, you know, we're already always battling against this perception of public defenders as folks who don't care. Um, it's way tougher when we can't even come face to face, even if it's behind the cage. And let me just reiterate for the audience, most people are in jail not because they're violent, not because they're a flight risk, but because they cannot afford bail. And that is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, Samuel, uh, I wanted to um, <laughs> move on to the next, uh, I mean, we're not gonna be able to talk about every single dynamic, yeah. obviously, but one of the big ones that comes up next is charging decisions by prosecutors. You were a former prosecutor. By the way, feel free to take the fifth if this is uncomfortable <laughs> for you, but um, is there such a thing as charge stacking, and if so, what is it? Of course. Um, charge stacking is the practice of adding charges to a charging document, an information, a complaint, an indictment. Um, not necessarily for the purpose of proving all of those at trial, but for adding leverage to your plea negotiation, right? Um, this happens. Uh, it has been deemed constitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in Bordenkircher. Um, it, 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 is a, it is a pernicious part of the system because most of the time prosecutors know 
that they cannot take all of these charges to trial. Um, defense attorneys know that too, but this is a cost-benefit analysis, right? This is every one of these charges come with a mandatory minimum. My total exposure is 80 years. There's no way, there's no way I'm taking that all the way to trial. I know they will drop four of the six charges on the information, uh, and, and so I take the deal. Now, if prosecutors instead had to prove each one of those charges, they wouldn't be able, they would get knocked down to two charges from the very outset, and then we would have a much fairer uh, negotiating process, right? Um, so that is the practice. Um, it is pervasive. And I think, you know, if we're going to get into the policy of how to change it, I think uh, offices ought to have internal policies to dissuade that kind of activity. And judges, um, without legislation, without uh, a, a, a Supreme Court ruling, can decide to put prosecutors to their paces and say, prosecutor, you had six charges on the indictment. You ended up with one in the plea bargain. What was gonna happen with those other five? What was your proof? How are you gonna go from ham sandwich indictment to beyond a reasonable doubt? Tell me that, and then I'll accept the terms of your plea bargain. Otherwise, it's not knowing, it's not intelligent, it's not voluntary, and I'm sending you back to the drawing board. I think one of the issues, though, too, is who's making the decisions to charge? Yes, the policy is set from the district attorney on down, but what I see and what I know from other jurisdictions is that the prosecutors in at least in Brooklyn, it's called the Early Case Assessment Bureau, but those folks who are deciding not only what to charge, but whether to allow something to, something to come into the criminal court system to begin with, so whether to charge, are made by the youngest attorneys. These are people that are straight out of law school who, you know, not to disparage law school, but we're mostly trained, unless you do clinics, on how to apply facts to law on law school exams. And so what they'll get is kind of the bare bones information and factual, uh, you know, allegations from usually an arresting officer, and then they'll have the statutes there. And then they'll, they'll figure out, okay, what's the highest charge that I can fit these facts into? Classic example and you know in, in, that we see all the time is so many of my clients are charged with violent burglary, burglary in the second degree, a C violent felony, mandatory minimum on a first arrest, three and a half years, max 15. Um, and my clients who are ordinarily charged with this, if they go into a lobby of a building and take a packet, lo- lobby of a building and take a package and resell it for, you know, whether it's drug money or if it's, or if it's just to support their family. Now, is it behavior that I would condone? No. Should it be criminalized? We can have that conversation. But should it be a violent felony? It is because a lobby is considered a dwelling. Do they have to charge it that way? No. They could charge it as a nonviolent burglary. They could charge it just as petty larceny, which is, I think, way more, um, way more appropriate. So I think before we get is that, that sort of second check, right, which yeah. we would like to think is the grand jury process. <laughs> um, and it's not. You know, we, we hear all the time that whole concept of, you know, the grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. What we don't think about is why. And that's because we allow at the grand jury process <clears throat> illegally obtained evidence, inadmissible evidence. Um, th- there's no questioning of. There's no scrutiny of. And so when and you Are you create, allowed inside? Absolutely not. Unless, you, unless your client is testifying, at least in New York. And, some, and that varies from place to place. So in a state like Virginia, um, the defendant is not present, is not allowed, and we are not allowed copies of a transcript, even if the case were going to trial. We have no access to anything that happens in the grand jury process. But if you create a process in which a prosecutor can inherently know that evidence that I know the police obtained illegally, that I know is not going to be admissible at trial, that could never be used, I know that. Or that if somebody questioned it, there are two other witnesses who have conflicting information, and I have no obligation to produce that. 
then inherently I've lost that check that the grand jury is supposed to be. And so even if you have that young person making the charging decision or a young police officer making that charging decision, that piece that we thought was a good check, we've eliminated as being a check because we, we allow information into that process without any scrutiny whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you know, if, you, if you start to inject some meaningful process into these places that are supposed to be checks, then you can start to bring the system back into balance so that you get a fairer system. Um, Samil, let's be clear about one thing. Um, it, are there ethical or professional you know, limitations on the ability, the power of mm -hmm. prosecutors to use their charging discretion for tactical reasons? In other words, to deliberately amp up the pressure through, through the exercise of charging discretion? So I would say yes, although um, there is no ethical opinion on this subject because uh, our ethics bodies are, are pretty much uh, uh, empty shells. But um, you know, at, at the broadest, at the highest level, um, prosecutors must seek justice and not convictions, right? Uh, that sounds pie in the sky, I get it, um, but that's the number one prosecutorial ethical requirement of theirs. Um, there are also lower level ones that say they cannot manipulate process in order to achieve convictions, um, that they must be forthcoming with the tribunal and, and defense counsel. Um, so yes, there is an ethical underlay to all of this, not just charging decisions, um, but everywhere. Um, and since you've already outed me, uh, I should say that, uh, um, you know, a lot of prosecutors' offices are trying to make the change. There is um, a coming revolution uh, of prosecutors' offices who realize this and are putting it into practice. Um, you can look at Philadelphia and Chicago and San Francisco, and there are models out there. So I don't want to say that this is, um, so like, like Scott said, it's not so entrenched that we can't get there. Um, and there are offices that take their, there are certainly line prosecutors and offices that take their obligations seriously, um, even without the external checks that we need. But we need a lot more of them to do so. As a fellow litigator and formal trial lawyer, let me rephrase my question. Yeah. Are you aware of any prosecutor who's ever gotten <laughs> in trouble for abusing their charging discretion? I'm not. Okay. Um, so, Scott, you've mentioned mandatory minimums a little bit earlier, and I'd like to bring those into the discussion. Um, it seems to me that there's there some interplay between charging discretion and mandatory minimums. Yep. Um, one of the things that a prosecutor can do is to decide whether or not to include a charge that carries a mandatory minimum. And, of course, um, you can explain what those are, but the gist of a mandatory minimum, some, that, that once a person is convicted of that charge, no one has any discretion. That person's just going to be sentenced to a certain amount of time. Um, and, and so it's a very powerful lever to bring into the process, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's extremely powerful. It actually came about, the conversation around mandatory minimums came about to take away discretion from judges who folks thought were using their discretion uh, for bad, um, you know, depending on what state you happen to be arrested in or what judge you happen to be in front of, your sentences, you know, varied wildly. The problem with mandatory minimums and wh whether this was foreseen or not I think it was foreseen by some, mm. uh, the discretion just shifted to prosecutors and gave them an additional tool um, to be able to ultimately drive, drive guilty pleas. And what essentially they say is, uh, you know, at the very earliest stage, so within 24 hours of, of arrest, not only are prosecutors making a decision on whether to request bail, but making a decision on what to charge. And that charging decision is perhaps the most uh, critical, not just because it's allowing the case to proceed. It's allowing, it's, it's rubber stamping maybe a, a police practice that shouldn't be rubber stamped. Um, but it's also setting um, a mandatory minimum. 
Um, so in the case of you know, the case I gave you, the burglary in the second degree, you could charge that as a petty larceny, which I think it, it is, but it technically fits into the statute for burglary in the second degree. And if you have a three and a half year mandatory minimum, and that means your you know, mother, your brother, your best friend could be a judge. And if you go to trial and you blow trial, um, trial's inherently risky, especially when you don't know what the evidence is going to be, uh, you qu- cannot get sentenced to any lower than that in that three and a half years. Um, The mandatory minimums, at least in New York, and I know other places, they go up depending on your criminal record. Um, And so what they essentially, what what they wind up doing is, is, my clients don't wind up getting sentenced to three and a half years because they don't go to trial. What winds up happening is they get offered two years and one charge down, um, or they get offered two charges down and maybe a year, or probation, or drug treatment, whether they're innocent or not, whether they've been stopped unconstitutionally or not. And you know, when faced with that risk, if they're in, when faced with that pressure to plead, if, they're, um, if they don't have any evidence and they don't know what trial is going to look like, uh, that three and a half years or that five years or that seven-year mandatory minimum, that no matter what, if you go forward, that's what you're going to get, um, turns into a really easy decision <laughs> to not take that risk. And what we see is prosecutors not saying, if you go to trial, we're going to give you, you know, you're going to get three and a half years. It's just understood. It's part of the milieu within which we practice. We understand and everyone understands that's what's going to happen. And so what they'll do, what prosecutors will do is say, this is, a la- this is the last offer we're going to make. You can take one year, have your day in court, go for it. You know, go, go um, you forget even trial. Uh, go and, and, and have your uh, public defender cross-examine that police officer in the stand. If, you're, if you want to you know, challenge that arrest, if you want to challenge that car stop, go for it. But this is the last time we're making that offer. And what that means is if you happen to lose the hearing, um, you know you're not going to get an offer and you're going to be going to trial and face that mandatory minimum. So it has, uh, so it's, it's, again, a relatively new invention, um, it wound up not solving the issue of too much discretion. It just shifted that discretion. Um, and it has enormous impact on the way that cases end. In effect, it puts the prosecutor rather than the judge in the position of determining how long someone's going to be in prison or yep. in, in some cases. The, other, the, other, the one other thing is that often mandatory minimums come with um, specific... There, there are certain cases where a judge, at least in New York, can overrule um, a prosecutor's objection to treatment. Um, but with certain charges, uh, they actually... It forecloses judges from making that, that, um, making that decision. And so I see all the time the prosecutors will make decisions on particular charges. So usually if they're violent charges, uh, whether there's any injury or not, and more often than not, there actually isn't, uh, in order not only to set that mandatory minimum, but strip the judges of any possible discretion to do the right thing. I was um, going to suggest that we move on to a somewhat different topic, but before I do that, I want to give all of the panelists an opportunity um, to um, identify any other factors or dynamics um, that contribute to the coercive nature of plea bargaining that we haven't discussed. We've talked about pretrial detention. We've talked about charging discretion and mandatory minimums. Um, is, there, is there anything we should be talking about or that should we, we should cover before we move on? So two things, because I wouldn't be doing my job with uh, NACDL if I didn't talk about our trial penalty report, yep. um, which hopefully all of you have had an opportunity to pick up or take a look at, um, which really details, it's focused on the federal system, but we see the same thing in state courts, which is 
This sort of writ large, the idea that going to trial becomes a, a penalty, right? The, the difference between what your plea offer is and what happens to you at trial, and in the federal system we see ranges three times the sentence, five times the sentence, seven times the sentence, eight, ten times um, the sentence. If the plea offer is that your behavior, based on our collective decision as a prosecutor, we believe merits a year or two years or five years, then why does your decision to go to trial merit 20 years or 40 years or 60 years? Um, and that, that fact that we can exact that penalty um, you know, inherently sort of encapsulates a lot of what we want to talk about. But the other piece I want to address is that the choice to not plead, to have my suppression hearing, to go to trial, um, requires something very fundamental, which is I have to have faith in the fairness of the system. Mm -hmm. Because my alternative to not pleading guilty is to trust the system is going to treat me fairly, right? That the judge is going to treat me fairly. The jury is going to treat me fairly. The attorney and, and the vast majority, about 80% of people who are charged with crimes, re rely on some type of court-appointed counsel, whether it's a public defender or a contract attorney or a, a private attorney who's appointed to represent them, that that person's going to have the time and the skill, the expertise, the resources to, to do their job. But even if they do a great job, right? You get in an office like, like the Brooklyn Defender. You get an attorney like Scott who's going to work really hard for you. No matter how hard he works, a judge or a jury at the end of the day is going to be the one that makes that decision. And I have to have confidence that they're going to treat me fairly. And there is very little right now about our criminal justice system that should give anybody a reason to believe that the system is going to treat them fairly. Um, and the vast majority of people who are brought into the criminal justice system already have experienced that they haven't been treated fairly. Whether they're being held pretrial on bail, that has nothing to do with whether they're a risk to the community. Whether they're not getting access to information. Whether the police have already engaged in illegal activity in stopping them or searching them or, or over-policing their neighborhoods. Um, there is no reason for them to have confidence in the system. If you don't have confidence in the system, there's not an alternative choice. Mm -hmm. Because that choice to go to trial even if you had no other pressure on me, would require me to believe that the court was going to treat me fairly. And until that happens, until we have a fair system, um, you can't have people make a meaningful choice. So the trial penalty, um, the, the differential between um, the deal someone will get and how long they'll serve if they take the deal, and what's going to happen to them if they go to trial and they lose. Correct. Um, Samuel or Scott, do you have any other um, dynamics you think people should know about? Yeah, I think we mentioned it, but I'll reiterate uh, pre-plea discovery, uh, the, the asymmetric information between the two parties. And two, I'll play to the crowd a little bit here, uh, funding of the public defender system and um, alternatives to incarceration. Uh, and Scott and, and Bonnie can speak to that much more uh, clearly than I can. And when you say funding of the public defender system, are you referring to the fact that, for example, there are, in some jurisdictions, there are public defenders who have literally hundreds of cases at any one time, and it's simply not possible for them to take every one of those cases to trial. It just couldn't humanly be done. Is that... That's right, and it feeds the narrative of the lazy, overworked public defender, but um, uh, it's a funding problem, and they need more of it. A narrative that... Bonnie and, and Scott are undermining, um, hopefully, That's here. That's right, Frank. Scott, do you want to add anything else? Uh, one is, is speedy trial. There's a constitutional right to a speedy trial. Um, the Constitution is, <coughs> by its nature, very um, broad and ambiguous about what that actually means. But state by state, and I can speak specifically to New York, there's all kinds of exceptions. So even though you only have a, technically 180 days to bring a felony <coughs> from start to finish to trial, and 90 days in the case of a misdemeanor, 
the clock stops all the time. And so my client, and my clients know this. They look to cases like Khalif Crowder, who was incarcerated for three and a half years on an, on, on an allegation alone, and think to themselves, okay, not only again, am I facing this time if I go to trial? Do I not know what's going on? Do, am I not, um, do, I, do I not trust my attorney? Am I incarcerated and, 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 and looking outward and, and wishing I was out? But they don't know when it's gonna end. And this applies not only when you're incarcerated, but if you're out. You know, the, just the process of having to come back to court time and time again. You know, the, the, we haven't talked about race the vast, yet, but I think because it's understood, but the vast majority of the people in the system uh, are, are uh, people of color, largely black or Latino. And if you have to come to court, even from a position of freedom, sit in a court all day, away from your job, away from your school, away from your family, take, uh, you know, spend them 550 that it takes round trip to get there. And you sit there and you have to watch people that look like you get called you know, time and time again before that judge and they walk down that aisle. It's a, and you're not even allowed to read. If you, mm -hmm. if you open up a book, you get screamed at for reading. It's a horrible punishment. You hear about the process as the punishment. And that can go on interminably. And so speedy trial is another thing that makes people just plead to, to stop the pain, stop the process. Um, so let's, let's change gears a little bit. There's um, a, a very uh, familiar aphorism that says better that 10... Men, guilty men go free, then that one innocent man be punished. There's actually a great law review article by Sasha Volok where he, he actually tries to figure out what is the number that is most frequently. Sometimes you'll see it's 100, sometimes it's 10, maybe, it's, maybe there's an average, who knows? But it, it, a bedrock conviction um, that, that underlies much of the process that we see in our system is that we want to uh, make sure that the, the, the entire process will err on the side of allowing guilty people to go free rather than erring on the side of convicting innocent people. Do we have, and Scott, your, your story was an anecdotal example of an innocent person who ultimately pled guilty to time served. Mm -hmm. Do we have any insight on whether um, innocent people being coerced into pleading guilty when they are not is an extraordinarily rare occurrence or whether it happens uh, with some regularity or do we have any insight into this? So the Innocence Project, so if we look at just a group and, and the Innocence Project is a great example because those are people that we know are innocent, right? They're not questionably innocent, they're not legally innocent, they're not, they, they are innocent, right? They have been proven innocent. 11% um, of the people who were exonerated were people who pled guilty. So better than one in every 10 people who have been exonerated pled guilty to a crime they didn't do. And 4% on death row. Yeah. And there was, um, maybe one of you is more familiar with this, but I believe there was um, an incident in Houston, Texas, where um, they basically upgraded their testing equipment for, for drugs, and they discovered when they tested the drugs that they, that they had caught people with, or the alleged drugs, um, it turned out that a lot of them were not actually drugs, and when they were properly tested, they were determined not to be drugs, but people still pled guilty to, to possession. So you, you have examples like that in... in Texas, you have examples of lab fraud. Massachusetts. Um, you know, uh, uh, Massachusetts. Um, you know, for those of you guys who are familiar with the, the Baltimore police officer video, it shows an officer planting yep. evidence. Right? You watch him on his body camera go and put the drugs down, walk back out with his buddies, think he's turning the camera on, not realizing it actually had back recorded 30 seconds, and then magically discovers um, evidence in the place that he left it. 
For years as defense attorneys, we know that happens. But imagine, take away that video, and the officer comes in and he says, I was out. I chased Johnny down the alley. I saw him make a throwing motion with his right hand. I visually watched it go to that location. I continued. I detained the suspect. I went back. I found laying on top of this piece of, of leaf or garbage or a soda can, this object where everything else around it was wet and damp from the morning dew. This was relatively dry. I collected it. I put it in this bag. Here it is. Um, poof. Um, as a defense attorney, you say, well, we can go to trial and say it wasn't yours, the police officer is lying, and, and this is planted evidence, um, or we can take that deal. And so you know, we, we know that that happened. That, that officer, um, when they looked at that group of officers, I think they looked at about 2,000 cases that those three officers were involved in. Um, and, and so you see this time and time again that we know innocent people are set up. Many of those people pled guilty. Um, but if we just look at that DNA exoneration rate, I, it's astronomical to think, because those are people who knew <laughs> they were innocent so this, and chose to, to plead guilty nonetheless. This has caused me to have a question. I've, I've not worked in the criminal justice system as a prosecutor or a defense attorney, but I've been a constitutional lit litigator for most of my career, so I, I sort of bring a certain understanding of process. I was also, um, early in my career, I did a fair amount of medical malpractice work, um, and my father uh, was a NASA engineer and an aerospace um, engineer. There are some settings in which um, you have a system and there are certain outcomes that are simply intolerable. You don't try to minimize the amount. They are intolerable. So in commercial aviation, plane crashes are intolerable. You don't try to minimize the number of plane crashes. You try to prevent them altogether. A hospital is very similar. You don't try to minimize the number of times you cut off the wrong leg. You try to ensure it never happens. And it seems to me that false convictions, and particularly false convictions obtained through confession, ought to be in this category. We don't try to minimize them. If you are working in the system, you should try to prevent them altogether. Now, one way that they go about that in other vocations, like uh, commercial aviation or like a hospital, is when they have a real disaster, like I've just described, they'll do something called a critical incident review. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they take a look, a very hard look, at the process, the whole process that led to that intolerable result. Not necessarily to figure out who to blame or what the punishment should be, but to figure out what it is about their process that produced this intolerable result. Does that ever happen? In, in prosecutor's office? Do they have a critical incident review process where when you know, they, they extract a false confession from somebody, the person's ultimately exonerated, everybody puts down what they're doing and says, oh my God, how did this happen? So there are some prosecutor's offices that are developing conviction integrity units mm -hmm. um, where they are going back and examining uh, convictions that are, that are questionable and examining what's happening and, and why. But that's different um, but than a systemic look at the it process. It is, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you know, fundamentally it starts with this idea that most people believe that those who are accused are guilty. And so if there's a flaw in the system, the feeling is, who cares? So, Scott, <laughs> does this happen? Yeah, do they well, do a critical incident review? The answer is largely no. You know, what I was about to mention conviction and integrity units. They have one in the Brooklyn DA's office, and they've, found, they've exonerated a number of people. And obviously, we are very much, as public defenders, as citizens, in support of investigating potential wrongful convictions. But I always ask, why don't we have systems in place to figure out what happened there so we can prevent wrongful convictions from happening? happening now? Why do we have to wait 15, 20 years after someone's done the time wrongfully to fix something? Um, one thing that I think could be, you know, I think one of the easiest is to, uh, when there are officers 
who the prosecutor's office knows has lied on the stand. Um, more, that's, that's rare because it's rare for officers to actually get to the stand, but have lied in paperwork. Um, whether, you know, a prosecutor, when a prosecutor has actually had a face-to-face conversation before a hearing or trial mm-hmm. with an officer and found them to be less than credible, like something's wrong. Um, to create a searchable, easily identifiable database internally that not only lets all the prosecutors know who these officers are, but just stop relying on them. I really believe that if you're an officer, it's the most weighty position you possibly could have. You have a gun, you have the the power to take someone's liberty away. You have the ability to, you're interacting with people all the time. And if that person is found to be incredible or have credibility issues or been found to have you know, used excessive force, it sounds radical, but uh, we've seen this in some places. Like in St. Louis, a prosecutor uh, decided and announced that she was not going to rely on 19 particular officers for their arrests anymore. Like the NY, that, that police department could continue to have that person on the force, but those arrests were going to go nowhere no matter what they were about. We need to see more of that. So, I'll say that um, this used to be the purview of the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, but I can't even finish that sentence without laughing and then crying. They're not in that business anymore? No. Okay. Um, uh, the role of judges has been mentioned on, a couple of times. So, Noel, you, you brought it up. And um, I, I want to bring us back to that uh, discussion. Um, I'll, I'll prompt, I want to I talk about, you know, whether judges are, are um, you know, upholding their, their duty in all of this. Um, but I, I thought I'd, I'd frame uh, the issue with a particular question, and that is, um, we talked about this a little bit before the event. If it is the case that there, is, there, there could be such a thing as plea bargaining, where the, maybe there's not, um, an, an intolerable amount of coercion. But then, with the application of too much pressure, you, you cross some line mm. and you get genuinely coercive plea bargaining, the kind that would result in a false conviction, uh, a false confession, for example. Um, what do we think about whether judges have, A, the ability, and, and or B, the duty, to try to identify that line and police it? Can it be done? I'll say um, they do. So it's not easy, apparently. No, no. This is is the hardest question that we're going to tackle today. Um, And I think that they do have the duty, and then we only get to the line drawing question. Uh, That's my opinion. Um, And I think, uh, so the entire sort of judicial abdication of of their duty in this realm has been based on the premise that, you know, this this is an arm's length contractual negotiation, right? And I, as a judge, shouldn't get involved. I'll only introduce inefficiencies to this negotiated result, which is which is um, preposterous, right? There, there, there is no there. There are none of the traditional um, um, elements of a, an arm's length negotiation, right? There's not full information. There's not undue influence, uh, or there is undue influence, right? Um, but even if you want to look at it like a contract, right? Judges aren't applying contract principles to it. Um, they're simply washing their hands of it, going through a boilerplate colloquy and moving on. Um, there are also constitutional obligations that they have to look into. Is this an unconstitutional condition, right? The state cannot condition a benefit on relinquishing a constitutional right. That's a duty that judges have to look into. Um, it, the due process clause requires that the plea bargain be voluntary, intelligent, and knowing. I think in many cases it's none of those, right? And it's the judge's responsibility at the sentencing, or I mean, I'm sorry, at the, at the plea colloquy to go through each one of those, and we know that they don't. Um, so, to, to the, but to the second question, um, can we draw lines? Um, uh, I think the line would have to start at information, right? 
uh, were they aware of all of the evidence that was being used against them? Um, and at least, uh, you know, start engaging in the sort of analysis of coercion that we use in other elements of the criminal law, right? You can't coerce a confession, and it's been a tough area of law to figure out what is coercive, but we've done it, right? Uh, we use coercion in, in many other elements outside the criminal law as well, right? It's a concept. It's a tough one, but we do it. Judges can apply it to this uh, realm as well. I'll, I'll just I, I'm way more, um, well, I, I don't think you were positive on the possibility that judges were going to do this, but I, I don't think judges um, are the answer, unfortunately, because they're operating within a legal construct that allows for this stuff sure. to happen. Mandatory minimums are the law in New York. Discovery that allows prosecutors to withhold evidence until the day of trial in New York is the law. And there's in that statute, very little, if nothing, the that, that a judge can do to actually um, penalize the uh, prosecutor from not turning something mm -hmm. over. Speedy trial is the law. And so they're, they're, it's, they have very limited ability to actually do anything other than ask really specific questions during a plea colloquy. Are you pleading guilty and, fr and freely and voluntarily? Sometimes judges will ask that question three or four times, and my, the client who wants the deal because they want to go home is going to answer their questions with conviction. No, I'm not pleading. Not, no, I'm not being coerced. Yes, this is of my own free will. I've had enough time to talk. Are they under oath when they do this? And they're under oath. So are they committing a crime? No. <laughs> You're charge stacking, Clark. <laughs> no, because, because they are. Rubbing also, off. <laughs> because, look, I, I think I can think about it more as, yes, I, I can see, I see the system more broadly as this is a coercive system. In that moment, they're making a free choice. I, I'm not forcing them to make that decision. They're not thinking about mandatory minimums in the way that I think about it, that this is coercive. They're, this is just the way that the system operates, and so they're doing, they're doing a thing. But... Um, you know, what I will say is that you can, you know, you can find there are judges that are willing to be brave and are willing to be courageous and willing to do things that, frankly, are not even allowed by the law. Are they all um, named Weinstein? What was that? <laughs> are they all named Weinstein? No, there's, there's, there's other, there's great judges in Brooklyn. Weinstein's a fantastic one in the federal circuit. But, um, but those are really rare and, and, and they take enormous risk. Every judge, or actually in New York, it's half elected, half appointed. I still can't figure out really how it works. But um, they're always in danger from the very beginning when they decide whether or not to set bail of ending up on the cover of the New York Post, whether it's their fault or not. And so there's enormous pressure there. And the prosecutors also will call judges out for doing something that's maybe too lenient or not within the law. And so this goes back to like what what can we change? I think prosecutors, or what can we change and who's the one to do it? Yeah. Legislation takes an enormous amount of time and, and uh, will encourage, and I actually do think that we're in an interesting place right now for there to be more courage um, on discrete issues. We're not gonna just end plea bargaining, but we can, we're tackling bail. Discovery, I think, is gonna be the next thing in New York. Mandatory minimums are a big deal. Um, so um, the law is one piece, but it takes a long time. Prosecutors, you know, really can, you know, go a long way to ending mass incarceration, like, tomorrow. They can decide, like Larry Krasner did, to just stop prosecuting certain crimes. No marijuana cases, you can arrest as many as you want, are coming into the system. Instead of what I see every day where I speak to a, uh, during a plea negotiation and I, um, with, with a prosecutor who is, who, 
who feels me. He was like, yes, I agree that the mandatory minimum is too high. I want to do treatment. Um, and then says the dreaded, question, dreaded words, let me go speak to my supervisor. And you know that the <laughs> ultimate answer is going to be no. Um, he's actually, so Larry Krasner is actually switching up the incentive. So he, he put forward a memo where instead of the usual structure in prosecutor's offices where you actually have to get higher-ups permission if you're going to go lenient to get an alternative to incarceration, he's making uh, prosecutors, line prosecutors and supervisors submit cost-benefit analyses to show why, if you're actually offering jail time, that makes more sense from human and fiscal cost and also public safety rationale than leniency than treatment than the other way around. Um, there's a whole and you know there's a whole lot of a lot of other ways that prosecutors well, can change the a, system. This is a great uh, topic. I, I think we're we're in an interesting place to sort of launch to the conclusion here. And, and and I was hoping we might be able to do it on an inspiring note or at least a somewhat inspiring <laughs> note. Um, prosecutors can do it. You know, there's a there's a um, tremendous literature on coercive plea bargaining, uh, and I've found that. Almost everybody who writes about it has a pet solution mm -hmm. to the problem. Yeah. Uh, and then those get critiqued and other people say, no, that's wrong, it won't work. And then, so I thought we might conclude with that. Maybe, maybe um, each of us, and I've got one, I'm, I'm gonna take a moderator's prerogative and talk about mine, but um, uh, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I don't think anybody seriously thinks that there is. But I'd love to, to, to have each of us maybe just quickly talk about um, a more or less plausible solution that would at least ameliorate some of the problems that we've been talking about. Um, and if anybody thinks there is a silver bullet, we should talk about that. But um, let's at least talk about what, what, what policies or what changes might we implement that would ameliorate this problem of, of coercive plea bargaining. Anybody may want to tick off some? You're nodding, so why don't you? Ooh, uh, okay. Um, well, uh, if we're talking about the individual uh, elements that make plea bargaining coercive, I think Scott just hit on it. If we end cash bail tomorrow, uh, we will end the strongest lever that prosecutors have. So, so if there were a wealthy philanthropist who wanted to do some real good and they just put up bail money for basically, maybe not everybody, maybe not the really bad people, but most of the people in a jurisdiction. Yeah. No one's bad. Come no on. one's bad. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, I, I know Everyone's some cops will give you an argument. But, yeah. um, but so, so you really think something as simple as that would have a significant effect on plea bargaining? 100%. Oh, so that was super quick. Um, so <laughs> I, I think a couple things. Um, so if you, if you take a look at our trial penalty report, we have, we have a number of recommendations that we make, one of which has to do with the variance between what a plea offer is and what your actual sentence can be. Mm -hmm. So that if we brought those two things closer together, so that the penalty to opt to go to trial were not what it is right now. So that rather than thinking that we penalize you for going to trial, we perceive the system more as... I don't know that reward is the word, because I don't like the, the concept that pleading it, it yeah. comes with a reward. Yeah. But th those two things come closer together. Um, certainly takes away that, that penalty. But I think more fundamentally, you have to just create an inherently fairer system, um, one that really strives towards those ideals of we want to err on the side of the innocent. We do put a thumb on the scale of justice, but it needs to be on the side of the defendant. And right now, that's not where it is. And so it is the check on the government. It is creating a system that allows people to litigate important constitutional issues like suppression, government overreach, without losing their opportunities. And that means taking power away from prosecutors and putting it back um, into a more balanced part of the system. And, and that includes resources um, and resourcing, better resourcing the defense function um, in general in order to bring the system back into more balance. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Scott? If I had to, if I had to pick one, and it's not necessarily the one, but one to add is discovery reform. Okay. Um, 
it's, you know, the, the rule should be some form throughout the country in every state of, uh, some, you know, every state, something like the prosecutor shall within, you know, as soon as possible, five, ten days of arraignment, turn over everything. And um, anything that comes in after that, turn over without having to do the analysis of what's Brady material, so what's exculpatory and what's not and what they think is important and that they should be able to turn over. Turn over everything. Um, If their job is to do justice, they shouldn't be concerned about withholding evidence as a means of, you know, of winning. And so what happens once once both sides have all the evidence, all the information, first of all, it actually breathes life into this idea of an adversarial system. Adversarialness doesn't just mean at trial, it also means testing the evidence before trial. I'll just give a quick example where I actually did get discovery turned over earlier and there was video and there were phone records and I was able to show that my client, who was charged with three armed robberies, was not the person on the video. I was able to hire um, a photogrammetry expert. Who the heck knows what science that is, but was able to determine that the person in the video was two inches taller, even at his lowest point, than my client. And we were able to do um, phone tower... What's it called? I'm drawing a blank. Thank you. Phone tower triangulation. And find that at each one of the three robberies, he was at least two miles away in Brooklyn, so it would have taken him 20, 30 minutes to get there. We presented that evidence to the the prosecution, and we were able to come out with a really, really just solution or just outcome that the prosecutors actually thanked us for. Same thing, you know, when they are actually forced to look at their evidence before they turn it over, the prosecution is, um, they have a better idea about the value of their case earlier so that it doesn't get to this point where it's the week before trial and they're suddenly at, only at that point having a conversation with their police officers who they may or may not think are credible and then make an offer at that point. So um, I think you know, it helps really both sides. It helps both sides make an informed conversation, informed decision about what's the appropriate plea deal. Um, in some cases, whether treatment is the more viable option. Uh, it, on the prosecutor's side, we've talked to a lot of prosecutors who say it actually allows cases to end a lot quicker um, because we can have that informed conversation with the defense and it empowers the defendant to be able to make an informed decision and have the kind of agency that pays itself forward in terms of perceptions of what the justice system should and is supposed to be. Sorry, can I jump right in with the Taylor Swift PSA? You can also vote for DAs who are going to do all of these things. Yes. So there was a remarkable uh, unbonk Fifth uh, Fifth Circuit opinion that came down a few weeks ago, unbonk. Um, and I have to say, I, I was taken by surprise because I, I did not realize that this was a thing. But the issue in the case was whether the government has an obligation to produce potentially exculpatory evidence, Brady material, before plea. offering a plea, before concluding a plea agreement. I was shocked that that's even a question. And I was even more shocked at what the answer was, or at least according to the Fifth Circuit. Does anybody, anybody want to sort of comment on this case, Mike? So the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> no um, obligation. No to obligation. produce to evidence produce in their possession. Correct. They know of. That they yep. know of, right? So, so I know, know <laughs> that I have evidence that shows the police officer planted the drugs. I know that I have evidence that shows that... As that, a prosecutor. Absolutely. Um, and I have absolutely no obligation whatsoever to turn it over while I'm offering you a plea. Um, and or to even tell you that I may have it, or even to suggest that. And fundamentally, I mean, if we're thinking about a, a, the, the concept of justice, that shouldn't be a question. It is not a question because in most defense attorneys' minds, I know I'm never going to see that information. You know, you made a point 
again, before we came out here to sit down, that I, I, I think it was a great point. I think it would be, uh, this is a good opportunity to elaborate on it. Um, share with us your perception about how the pervasiveness of plea bargaining may cause the public to have a misperception about the system and the way it operates, if you would. Thank you. I love when you make me look smart. <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, if you think about it from the outside, if you looked at the criminal justice system and you said, you know what, people get arrested and then they plead guilty and they go to jail. And we look and we say, you know what, I would never plead guilty to something I didn't do. Nothing could make me plead guilty to something I didn't do. And so people who plead guilty are guilty. And so the people who are being arrested and being prosecuted are being rightfully arrested, they're being rightfully prosecuted, and they're being rightfully convicted. So our system is working. Everything is good. Um, and so we get this, this perception, and we believe then that our police officers are doing good jobs, we believe our prosecutors are doing good jobs, we believe our laws are good, and it's all fueled by this fundamental belief that simply has no merit, which is that only people who plead guilty right? only guilty people are people who plead guilty. And so we, we, we sort of create this feedback loop um, that just continues to lead us to believe that our system is doing the right thing. And so when I do pick a jury and I put them in the box and I can ask them about, you know, do you, you know, do you believe in the presumption of innocence? Do you think just because somebody's arrested that they're not guilty? I think outwardly consciously you would say, no, I don't. But you're subconscious. And the thing you're confronted with every day is, well, yeah. Because why would the police go out and arrest innocent people, right? Why would they prosecute innocent people? Why would a prosecutor waste time and money and resources and, and have all these court proceedings and bring me here if they weren't guilty? Um, and we know those things play out, and we can draw that from other fields. So we look at eyewitness identification, right, another leading contributor to wrongful convictions. And when you ask people who've gone in and made identifications, and they say, well, you know, I was called to the police station, and I was asked to look at these photos, and I was told, you know, the person may or may not be in there, and... But of course, why would the police bring me to the police station? Why would they have a set of photos if there wasn't somebody there? And if that person then wasn't also prosecuting, these things didn't happen. And so subconsciously, I come to believe it, and I become confident in it. And we see that over and over again. It, it pervades the system, and it, it disrupts all these other things that we've talked about, which is the check on, on government, the check on government access, the ability to recognize the value and the cost of what we're doing in our justice system right now. So we create this system, um, you know, Shamil said at the beginning, that it becomes something you have to do to make the system work. Right. Um, it should be hard to put people in jail. Yeah. It should be incredibly, <clears throat> incredibly hard. It should be the thing that we least want to do. Yeah. And yet right now it is the thing that we do out of ease. It is the easiest thing to do. <clears throat> I want to support uh, something you said, um, and also take a, chance, a, a moment, uh, opportunity to plug the uh, this, this year's Cato Supreme Court review. Um, there was an article that I, I edited in, in, involving a Supreme Court case called the United States versus Class. It was, it was basically a guy who had had some guns in his car, and he went to do a tour of Capitol Hill. The police found them. <clears throat> he ended up um, pleading guilty to the gun charge, um, but in his mind, he thought he could still challenge the constitutionality of the law, um, notwithstanding the fact that he said, well, yeah, I had the guns, and I, technically I did all that stuff. But, and so that was the issue in the case. And the Supreme Court, in my judgment, got it right. They said the prosecution did not explicitly say that he'd waived his right to challenge constitutionality of the law, so he mm -hmm. didn't. But the article, I thought the most important, uh, most interesting part of the article was um, a review of some literature that I was totally unaware of. Namely, there's a growing empirical body of work where um, researchers are testing the ability to get innocent people to confess to things they didn't do in a controlled 
controlled setting. So for example, you'll get a bunch of college students, um, they sign up for what they think is a psychology uh, experiment, and they're, they're told to participate in a game with certain rules. And then at the end of it, the, the researchers confront them and say, you know, we, we were actually monitoring the whole thing. We've had you on camera, and we noticed that you cheated. And we're going to have to report that to the honor committee. And, the, and it's absolutely false, totally false, and is astonishingly easy for, to get something. If you just say something like, you know, but if you'll just admit it, write down on this piece of paper that you did it, we, we'll, we can just, we'll just never include you in one of these experiments again. We'll let it go at that. It's, and it, it's incredibly easy. So we, we, I, it seems to me that our system has got to take notice of, of what we know scientifically about how people actually respond to situations like that, not our sort of idealized version of how they might respond. You'd like to think so, the Central Park Five all confessed to a crime they didn't do. Right, right. Um, so I, um, I'm going to sort of take a moderator's um, prerogative to... to um, Describe something we're working on at Cato, and then we'll take some questions. Um, it, it, my, I shared this with you before. Uh, my wife was called for jury duty um, about a year ago, and um, ironically ended up being called for jury duty into the courtroom of the judge that I clerked for, and so got excused because she knew the judge. But put that aside. I thought to myself, what if she came home uh, at some point during the trial and, and said to me, you know, it's a drug prosecution. I know I'm not really supposed to talk to you about it, but my conscience is really bothering me. The, the, he seems like a really nice guy. Um, you know, he's been charged with selling maybe a few grams of meth, and, uh, you know, he was an addict, and then he got on the wagon, but then, you know, his wife left him with the kids, and he just had a relapse, and, oh, he's selling some of it to support us. He doesn't seem like a bad guy. Can you give me any sort of sense of what's going to happen to him if, if we, you know, vote to convict him? If I were to go and research that and come back to her and say, well, you know, based on the weight you described and depending on whether he's got any priors, it's going to be something like this. I've just committed a crime, haven't I? And what crime is that? Tampering. It's, it's jury tampering, right? By passing along truthful information to another, a fellow citizen, who is engaged in what I think is one of the most important political acts that we, that we can participate in this society, I have actually, according to the government, I have committed a crime, haven't I? Are people ever prosecuted for things like that? No. No, no. Are people prosecuted no. for jury tampering? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I think the solution is just to have Scott tweet at her, and then you're off the hook, and it's fine. <laughs> and then everyone will see it, and it'll be fine. Noted. It works. Um, so, so where I'm going with this is to say that uh, my colleague Jay Schweikert and I, Jay's in the front row there, are, um, have launched a strategic amicus campaign where we're, we're trying to get courts um, first more attuned to, and then hopefully to actually buy into the idea that the routine suppression of truthful information might actually have some First Amendment concerns, and that if threatening a citizen with uh, prison for sharing truthful information with another citizen about an ongoing case without some really compelling justification, uh, that maybe we need to take a fresh look. And that ultimately, perhaps, um, a, a counter-agent or a way to push back against coercive plea bargaining would be to change the system so that, for example, um, jurors do get to hear something like, what was the substance of any plea offer? You're threatening this person with 100 years in prison, and then imagine a jury that finds out, and you offered two years? By the way, not an invented hypo. Well, I, I, changed two th- I changed that in favor of the prosecution. We are now working with a guy charged with white-collar crime in Dallas. He was charged, he was uh, threatened with 220 years. The final plea offer that he took, even though he's innocent, was 21 months mm-hmm. in a minimum security camp. And I told him, I said, I can't fault you for that. I, I would confess to anything. I would confess to assassinating Abraham Lincoln if I was offered 21 months and I was being threatened with 220 years. So how might this dynamic change if jurors had access to information like 
offers that the, plea, the, the prosecution has made, or just what's going to happen to this person if we convict them? Could that change the, the might that change the dynamics? Just, it's an interesting thing. So Virginia is one of, I think, only two states in which we actually do jury sentencing. Right. So in Virginia, if somebody is convicted, the jurors recommend, the judges tend to follow those recommendations, uh, sentences, not just in capital cases, but in everything. Mm-hmm. Except um, when there's a mandatory minimum, right? So even if there's a mandatory minimum, the jury sentences, even though really they have no yeah. discretion. Okay. Um, and it has been an ongoing legal battle because one of the things defense attorneys have asked is, I would like to ask jurors in Guadir when we're selecting our jurors about the penalty and their feelings about the penalty as it may impact their decision. On the capital side, we do it all the time, right? We ask people if they can impose the death penalty, their feelings about life verdicts. Um, and the Virginia appellate courts have been very clear that that is absolutely prohibited. Mm. Um, in fact, it's, it's been litigated over and over and over. And, and we continue to try to, to address this. Because the question is, when somebody knows about the penalty, will their decision be then that maybe what I'd want to do to avoid the penalty is simply not convict the person. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that brings you know this very fundamental idea about jury nullification and the rights that jurors have. Which to we call conscientious acquittal. Um, I, I like that. I, I, I like that name. Maybe that's what we need to do is change our pleadings to refer to the jurors' <laughs> rights to conscientious acquittal. Um, you, know, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that you'd have to really sort of think this through because I think some of the, the feedback may be, well, on the prosecution side, why, you know, you made that offer, mm-hmm. and maybe that has some reasons, and, and why are we doing this now? On the defense side, what, where do we start to go if, who made the first offer? What if I, as the defense attorney, made the first offer, and now this information is going to come in, and it's going to be perceived as an idea that you must be willing to plead guilty, or you must believe you're guilty because you, you put this out there. Um, but I think there's certainly a, a gap in what we're asking juries to do, and it, it's part of a much bigger yeah. dynamic, which is, the, the powerful thing about engaging citizens as jurors is what they bring to the table as representatives of the community. The challenge is what they bring to the table as members of the community. So those things that are going on in jury rooms um, and this concept of, well, what if I get a piece of truthful information? Um, one of the big issues in front of the Supreme Court has been what's going on in jury deliberations when people are sharing information about the fact that, oh, well, you know, he's likely to have committed that, that rape because... That's what Hispanic guys do. Yeah. Um, and you know what we do and don't allow to be shared in the jury room out in a public space. So I, I think that brings us full circle in a way that's, that's uh, a nice point to end on, which is that <clears throat> in our Constitution, the framers made a conscious decision to put citizen participation in the form of jury trials at the very heart of our criminal justice system. And it is no exaggeration to say that we have taken the heart of our criminal justice system, citizen participation, and we have simply ripped it out. Um, and whatever the consequences are that come with that are, the, are, are what we have been dealing with and talking about during this panel. So I want to thank you all um, for, for a stimulating discussion. Um, we now have about 15 minutes um, of questions in the audience. You, sir, in the very back. Um, and if you would, um, or if you, if you choose to, uh, please tell us your name, any affiliation you have, and um, make sure that it's a, a question and not a rant, even though you would be <laughs> excused for having a rant. Yes, sir. Leonard Campbell, no notable affiliation. Okay. Um, a question is basically... Uh, it sounds like anybody who interacts with the system from the wrong side is going to pay either in time, money, or reputation. Uh, obviously, if you have money, you write a check and you're just kind of done with it. But uh, particularly for people who are paying in reputation, that has uh, consequences that pretty much go on for forever, housing, uh, economics, so on and so forth. So is there a, a tenable path to alleviating that part uh, through maybe con- uh, expungement of convictions? 
particularly for, for first-time offenders who obviously don't go on to reoffend. Great question. Anybody want to tackle that? I mean, that, uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head in terms of, you know, the consequences of a plea. Um, a plea is a conviction. It's a conviction like you went to trial, uh, except you're waiving your right to trial, you're waiving your right uh, to cross-examine witnesses, et cetera. And that conviction can have forever consequences. Even just, frankly, even just an arrest or a charge can have longstanding consequences. There's 47,000 laws of restriction nationwide that prevent people with contact with the criminal justice system from reintegrating. It makes no sense from a public safety st standpoint, from a economic standpoint, we should want people, once they come out of jail, and by the way, 600,000 people every year come out of jails and prisons, we should want them to be able to re reintegrate into society. Instead, we further marginalize folks, which only reinforces the conditions that got them there in the first place. So expungement is a, is a major um, way to kind of deal with these collateral consequences. Unfortunately, with expungement, they're still, yeah. uh, you know, state by state, you know, you, they still might come up on your rap sheet on your after, it, when you give your fingerprints, and so a judge could consider it, uh, that arrest, even after, if you've been arrested again. You know, I, my, my sense is, you know, so that's, expungement is really important. Expungement and sealing is really important. Also going after, um, you know, uh, laws that discriminate uh, in employment contexts, public housing, et cetera. I think, though, we should also be thinking about just on the front end. Mm -hmm. yeah, we arrest far too many people for far too many things that shouldn't be crimes in the first place. And if we start shrinking the system more, we ultimately start to stop. We, we ultimately start shrinking the consequences of the involvement in that system. And one avenue between those two points is uh, pretrial and pre-arrest criminal diversion, right? Which actually gives the prosecution the same benefit of a truncated process while alleviating the burden of a criminal conviction, right? And just, I'm sorry to, to explain, pretrial diversion is an alternative to the trial process whereby, you know, you sign a contract that says I won't offend again, I may attend treatment, I may pay restitution. You know, I'll try to make the community whole in a non-criminal way, and then this, um, this entire process goes away and off my record. Um, and I think that's a, that's, a, and it also produces cost savings that a lot of jurisdictions are interested in. So I think that's another way um, to address uh, your concerns. On the front row here, sir. <clears throat> You've kind of touched on this with the inherent racism and in convictions. And then you sort of touched on it here. One of the things that you lose is the right to vote. Uh, and voter suppression is, a, is becoming a really major issue in this country today, uh, certainly among certain supporters. Uh, have you found a difference in who supports criminal justice reform, uh, taking care of coercive uh, deliberations like this? between different parties, or is everybody offended equally? What's the, you know I'm talking Trump. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, you know, I think politically there's an appetite uh, to yeah. some extent on both sides to change a lot of things about our criminal justice system, sometimes for different reasons, but there's certainly an appetite on both sides. I think more fundamentally is the fact that I can take away your vote and with that your voice just allows us to perpetuate this marginalization because the people who are being the, the victims of wrongful convictions, the people who are being um, over-policed and over-prosecuted, the people who are ending up with criminal records, lose the power to do anything about it. And so, it, you know, in my mind, the, the, a lot of these changes start with really just um, citizens who are willing to stand up 
and say, I'm not going to elect DAs that don't look at and, and fundamentally changing the system. I want legislators who are going to change laws to avoid the loss of the right to vote, <laughs> the, the you know, failure to use expungement and sealing and all of these things. Um, but fundamentally, it, it'll, it feeds on itself. Um, and there are a lot of, I think Florida, I forget how many thousands of people in Florida um, right now. And so that's one extreme. And at the other extreme, I think there are two states where you can vote um, even when you're incarcerated. But, but keep in mind, even in states and jurisdictions that don't actually disenfranchise by the books, um, people who are brought into the system and recycled through the system and brought in again and coursed into pleading guilty, it has an expressive and emotional component. Um, and, you know, it, it gives you less faith, like you were talking about, in not only the criminal justice system, but just in um, the ability, you know, to, to trust any part of the system. And so that makes you uh, less likely to want to vote because your voice doesn't matter. You know, in court, you know, you are shut up and shut down. And so that encourages that. And I'll just say, if we're looking for that inspirational note, um, the Koch Network is supporting Amendment 4 in Florida, which will re-enfranchise 1.4 million people. And you can look at the makeup of this dais as well. Um, there is consensus here. Ma'am, in the back, very back there. Hi, my name is Cynthia Smith. I'm like 30 minutes late, but I want to ask a question about um, in different states, there's a lot, there's such thing as collaboration with different state agency. So I, I would like to know if um, in your state that where you're, you know, it, do you um, collaborate with law enforcement to actually introduce a bill to end this kind of mess that we're going through. I just wanted to, you know, see the collaboration in your, if there is any. It, it, would, be it would be great if we could. Um, you Are know, you a collaborator, Scott? I'm a collaborator. Look, there's a lot of collaboration between, you know, public defenders, directly, directly impacted people and communities and grassroots organizations. And, to an increasing extent, um, even you know the Brooklyn DA's office um, I, and DA's offices around the country. Um, so I want to see more collaboration. Unfortunately, what you have, what, what you find is um, public defenders and those those other groups fighting for smart on crime legislation and changes. Um, there might be 40, 50, 60 people in the room, and then one DA walks in and says, you know, blood's going to be running through the streets if we do this, and the, the lawmakers tend to listen to the DAs. Um, so I wish there was, I, I, I'm hopeful that there will be more collaboration. Uh, we haven't seen uh, as much as I'd like yet. What I will say, though, on a, on a positive note, is that recently um, in New York, uh, there was bipartisan legislation that was pushed by public defenders, by grassroots organizations, by wrongfully convicted people to establish the first in the nation commission on prosecutor conduct. And um, we had no hope that it was going to pass because it had extraordinarily strong opposition from the DA's association. And as if history, look, if history is a guide, there was 0% chance of that passing 
uh, both the Senate and the, and the Assembly, which it did, but Cuomo signing it. And Cuomo signed it. It was the first time, and as long as I can remember for sure, but my, my executive director, who's been a public defender since the 80s, first time uh, the state actually passed smart on crime legislation against the really vociferous response of, uh, of DAs. And so, long answer to a short question, uh, I there's not enough. I wish there were more, um, but it's looking like we can still do things even without that collaboration. So I think, you know, looking nationally um, at this, we do see places where there is a collaborative effort with law enforcement, with prosecutors, with defense attorneys, with affected communities. Um, and I think it starts with not just trying to do that on the legislative level. A lot of times it starts by on the local level. Um, being involved in committees together, being involved in task force together, places where people can actually sit down and have real conversations about what are the concerns and hear each other and recognize that there are a lot of shared concerns and a lot of shared ways to solve the problem before we get to the level of the legislature where we're now sort of camped out in our our sides um, and and fighting about a bill. Yes, sir. Glasses. Yep. No, no. uh, Well, we'll we'll do two more. (laughs) Uh, Kevin Fagan, uh, acquaintance of the ruling families of the United Arab Emirates, and by no means a friendly one. So I'm wondering at what point did the U.S. government acquire the right to apply the coercive uh, conditions of Emirati law to me, since I'm a U.S. citizen who's spent most of my life in the U.S.? We might take that one up individually. Um, that's, a, that's a niche question. Uh, two, two, two rows back. Three. Thank you. All right, this will have to be the last one. Oh, uh, my name is Dan Neuter. I'm a CJA uh, panel attorney, uh, appellate primarily in the Second Circuit. And in virtually every case that is appointed to me, not only has the defendant already pled guilty, but there's virtually always an appeal waiver in the written plea agreement, which prevents the defendant from either raising an appeal or even raising a post-conviction motion for federal habeas relief. Um, I was wondering whether the panel could speak to that factor, you know, in the context of judicial abdication of their role to... uh, to police or consider these plea agreements. Thank you. So I, th- I think when we look sort of at that broad scope, that is a wonderful place where judges can step in and say that that's not going to be a term of the agreement. I think the step has to come even sooner, which is that the message has to be communicated so on the federal level from the Department of Justice, yeah. that those are not acceptable. And I think back to a number of years ago, there had been a provision that specifically required people as a part of their plea agreements federally to waive their right to challenge the ineffective assistance of counsel to make a, a post-conviction claim that it was that there was some wrongdoing on the part of the attorneys. Um, NACDL did a lot of work to have and, and ultimately issued an ethics opinion that said that's unethical. I, as an attorney, can't advise my client to take an agreement that includes in it a waiver to to to, to, to challenge the effectiveness of my representation. And ultimately, that was removed by the Department of Justice as a, as a requirement. And I think that's a place where we need to go back and look at um, that, you know, Having somebody give up their right to trial shouldn't mean that they also lose their right to challenge whether there are mm-hmm. legal, other legal actions, other legal avenues, um, disproportionate sentencing challenges, the ability to challenge other, other, other evidence that may come forward later in a post-conviction. And those waivers are required in, in Brooklyn and throughout New York City. I and none of my attorneys in my office or Legal Aid Society actually signed the forms, even though there's a line and we're supposed to sign them, which leads to a really kind of odd conversation in that moment during the plea between the client who is saying, so why am I signing this? And I have to explain, look, 
we're going to appeal your case anyway. We file notices of appeal in all of our cases. We don't think that it's constitutional or legally enforceable. Unfortunately, the state, the state of the law right now, and we're working to change it, is not the state of law, but the state of practice is the prosecutor requires and the judge is not going to take your plea unless, unless it happens. So we're, we're doing our, our both on-the-record protests but also behind the scenes working together to try to fix it. Thank you for your work. Um, so we'll conclude with this note. Uh, I want uh, to suggest that everybody think about uh, something, and that is that um, to be truly legitimate and well-functioning, it is not enough that a criminal justice system produce substantively fair results. It is also necessary that it do so in a way that merits our confidence and our support. And a system that has transitioned to um, a, an adjudicative uh, mechanism that is virtually never transparent, takes place behind closed doors, and, and does not enable us as citizens to participate, um, whether actively as a jury or simply by being able to observe how the result came about, is one that I, I can't see how it does and how it possibly could merit our trust, our confidence, and our support. And if, if for no other reason, if not even putting aside the individual injustices, the fact that our system is, has transformed into something that is not possible to feel confident about, uh, makes this, I think, one of the most urgent issues in criminal justice. And I want to thank our panelists for uh, a very interesting and stimulating and hopefully fruitful discussion. Thank you very much, and thank you. Hi. Thank you.